This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Okay, finally, there's a lot of news this week. I wanted to wait until the end of the week to record an episode because I knew there's going to be all this news. But here we are. The first item is that Apple crushed their earnings expectations. Tim Apple did it again. They crushed expectations. This was exciting for me in particular because I have a huge amount of my portfolio in Apple. I've been talking about the stock. I've been saying that I think it's undervalued, even at a market cap of $1.7 trillion. I still think the company's undervalued. So that's hard for a lot of people to grasp. How can a company worth that much money be undervalued? I'll be talking more about Apple later. We also have news that they're going to be doing a four to one stock split. So I'll go over that, give my thoughts on it. We have some less positive news, but I still think it's okay. We have news that US GDP plunged 33% in the second quarter. So as an economy, gross domestic product is, is the metric that we use to say, hey, this is how much economic activity the country has. That went down about 33%. Not the best news, but we did beat expectations. It was 35% and it went down 33%. So this isn't great news, but it was largely factored in already. The second quarter was going to be bad. We should see a strong rebound in the third quarter. So we'll look at that. And then we have what I'm most excited to talk about, which was this House Judiciary Committee hearing the four biggest CEOs in the country. We got Jeff Bezos, Tim Cook, Mark Zuckerberg, and Sundar Pichai going before Congress to answer their questions about antitrust. Congress is trying to paint the picture that these companies are monopolies, that they don't have competition, and that they need to be scaled down, they need to be broken up, and they need to have stiff regulations on them. They're trying to say, we have a tremendous amount of competition, There's a whole great world out there. There's Chinese companies that compete with us, and there's lots of companies within the U.S. that competes with us. Now, of course, Congress did what they do best. The typical thing what Congress does is none of them really have employed anybody. None of them have ran companies. And what they're going to do is explain to Jeff Bezos how he should run his company and how to create wealth. You're going to see people that are lawyers that their best skill is arguing amongst each other. You're going to see them lecture people like Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg on creating jobs and creating wealth and competing. And that's what Congress does. So this is a clear dichotomy. With this hearing, you see the difference between the biggest business leaders in the world and politicians. And what becomes clear is that these politicians, Congress, they have no clue of what they're even expected to regulate. They don't know how these companies make money, how they grow and expand, and what their risks are. They don't know what their competition is. And that becomes very clear. So you're seeing a body of government, all of Congress, that has no clue on the thing that they're supposed to regulate. And you can see that very clearly in these clips. So we're going to take a deep dive into this. We're also going to, of course, do a portfolio update and get to questions and emails as well. So this should be a pretty fun episode. So let's first jump into this hearing. This is the chairman over the committee. He's the one that's going to give an introduction to why they're meeting with these CEOs. And basically, he's laying out the case that these companies are too big, too restrictive, that they need to be regulated by the government. Now, this is what I think is one of the most significant risks to these big companies. If you're an investor in Google or Apple 
or Facebook or Amazon, one of the biggest risks to your investment is government intervention, is government regulation. So if he launches really effective attacks into these companies, it could be devastating. If Congress can get people on their side that these companies need to be regulated, that could be a significant risk to your investment. So I'll go ahead and and watch him play this clip. And keep in mind, when you're watching this, or anybody from Congress, like the chairman here, he's a lawyer, which is over half of Congress. He has worked in government about 25 years, basically his entire adult life. He's never started a company, never employed anybody, but he's going to make a breakdown of how bad these companies are. So let's go ahead and hear this from the chairman. As gatekeepers of the digital economy, these platforms enjoy the power to pick winners and losers, to shake down small businesses and enrich themselves while choking off competitors. Their ability to dictate terms, call the shots, upend entire sectors, and inspire fear represent the powers of a private government. Our founders would not bow before a king, nor should we bow before the emperors of the online economy. Already he's referring to these companies as the emperors and kings of our time, and that we shouldn't bow to them. So creating some visual there, I think it's effective, but let's go ahead and transition to Jeff Bezos. This opening statement from Jeff Bezos is pretty epic. It is an awesome opening statement. I don't know how he could have done this better. This was incredible considering this is his first time in front of Congress. But the way that he humanizes himself reminds people that he's just a person that started a really big company. And the way that he lays out the journey of Amazon was pretty incredible. So let's go ahead and listen to it. I was born into great wealth, not monetary wealth, but it said the wealth of a loving family a family that fostered my curiosity and encouraged me to dream big. My mom, Jackie, had me when she was a 17-year-old high school student in Albuquerque. Being pregnant in high school was not popular. The school tried to kick her out, but she was allowed to finish after my grandfather negotiated terms with the principal. She couldn't have a locker, no extracurriculars, and couldn't walk across the stage to get her diploma. She graduated and was determined to continue her education. So she enrolled in night school, bringing me, her infant son, to class with her throughout. My dad's name is Miguel. He adopted me when I was four. He was 16 when he came to the US from Cuba by himself shortly after Castro took over. My dad didn't speak English and he did not have an easy path. What he did have was grit and determination. He received a scholarship to college in Albuquerque, which is where he met my mom. Together with my grandparents, these hardworking, resourceful, and loving people made me who I am. I walked away from a steady job on Wall Street into a Seattle garage to found Amazon, fully understanding that it might not work. It feels like just yesterday I was driving the packages to the post office myself, dreaming that one day we might afford a forklift. Customer obsession has driven our success, and I take it as an article of faith that customers notice when you do the right thing. You earn trust slowly over time by doing hard things well, delivering on time, offering everyday low prices, making promises and keeping them, and making principled decisions even when they are unpopular. And our approach is working. 80% of Americans have a favorable impression of Amazon overall. Who do Americans trust more than Amazon to do the right thing? Only their doctors and the military. The retail market we participate in is extraordinarily large and competitive. 
Amazon accounts for less than 1% of the $25 trillion global retail market and less than 4% of U.S. retail. There's room in retail for multiple winners. We compete against large established players like Target, Costco, Kroger, and of course, Walmart, a company more than twice Amazon's size. 20 years ago, we made the decision to invite other sellers to sell in our store to share the same valuable real estate we spent billions to build, market, and maintain. We believe that combining the strengths of Amazon store with the vast selection of products offered by third parties would be a better experience for customers and that the growing pie of revenue and profits would be big enough for all. We were betting that it was not a zero-sum game. Fortunately, we were right. There are now 1.7 million small and medium-sized businesses selling on Amazon. The trust customers put in us every day has allowed Amazon to create more jobs in the United States over the past decade than any other company. Hundreds of thousands of jobs across 42 states. Amazon employees make a minimum of $15 an hour, more than double the federal minimum wage. And we offer the best benefits, benefits that include comprehensive health insurance, 401k retirement, and parental leave, which includes 20 weeks of paid maternity leave. More than any place on earth, entrepreneurial companies start, grow, and thrive here in the U.S. We nurture entrepreneurs and startups with stable rule of law, the finest university system in the world, the freedom of democracy, and a deeply accepted culture of risk-taking. Of course, this great nation of ours is far from perfect. Even as we remember Congressman John Lewis and honor his legacy, we're in the middle of a much-needed race reckoning. We also face the challenges of climate change and income inequality, and we're stumbling through the crisis of a global pandemic. Still, with all of our faults and problems, the rest of the world would love even the tiniest sip of the elixir we have here in the U.S. Immigrants like my dad see what a treasure this country is. They have perspective and often can see it even more clearly than those of us who were lucky enough to be born here. It is still day one for this country, and even in the face of today's humbling challenges, I have never been more optimistic about our future. I appreciate the opportunity to appear before you today, and I'm very happy to take your questions. I can't be the only one that listened to this live and thought to myself, I should just buy Amazon stock. I should throw my whole life savings into Amazon, and as long as that guy is the CEO, it's going to continue to do well. As long as Jeff Bezos is the CEO of Amazon, it's going to be a successful company. This guy made this company not by mistake. He didn't stumble into creating Amazon. The reason it's so big and so successful is because of Jeff Bezos. That's the reason that Amazon has done so well. So this opening statement I thought was very effective. I think anybody listening to this live is going to have a more favorable view of Amazon. So I don't think Congress really did themselves any favors by having this hearing. Next up, we have Tim Cook. He did a little bit more of a sales pitch in his opening statement. He's trying to sell Apple a little bit. Uh, he doesn't talk as much about his background, but that makes sense when he's not the founder of the company like Jeff Bezos. But let's go ahead and listen to just a bit of his opening statement. My name is Tim Cook. I've been Apple CEO since 2011 and a proud employee of this uniquely American company since 1998. At Apple, we make ourselves a promise and our customers a promise. It's a promise that we'll only build things that make us proud. 
As Steve put it, we only make things that we'd recommend to our family and friends. You can try to define this difference in a lot of ways. You can call it the seamless integration of hardware and software. You can call it simplicity of design or a great ecosystem. All of those things are true. But if you want to put it simply, products like iPhone just work. When customers consistently give iPhone a 99% satisfaction rating, that's the message they're sending about the user experience. I love that all these companies mention their their user satisfaction rating because Congress currently has an approval rating of 18%. So Congress is criticizing these companies when Apple has a 99% satisfaction rating, Congress is currently sitting at 18%. But we also know that customers have a lot of choices and that our products face fierce competition. Companies like Samsung, LG, Huawei, and Google have built successful businesses with different approaches. We're okay with that. Our goal is the best, not the most. In fact, we don't have a dominant share in any market or in any product category where we do business. What does motivate us is that timeless drive to build new things that we're proud to show our users. We focus relentlessly on those innovations, on deepening core principles like privacy and security, and on creating new features. Now, I want to pause it here because he's about to talk about the App Store. This is the focus point of the criticism for Apple. Basically, the critics for Apple say that the App Store is a monopoly, that Apple has this massive App Store, and for developers to make money on the App Store, they have to give 30% of the take to Apple. That's the commission, 30%. So uh, that's the focus of the criticism. Tim Cook is trying to explain how that's not a monopoly, and that's actually a pretty decent fee when you compare it to any other type of similar store. In 2008, we introduced a new feature of the iPhone called the App Store. Launched with 500 apps, which seemed like a lot at the time, the App Store provided a safe and trusted way for users to get more out of their phone. We knew the distribution options for software developers at the time didn't work well. Brick and mortar stores charged high fees and had limited reach. Physical media like CDs had to be shipped and were hard to update. From the beginning, the App Store was a revolutionary alternative. App Store developers set prices for their apps and never pay for shelf space. We provide every developer with cutting-edge tools like compilers, programming languages, and more than 150,000 essential software building blocks called APIs. The App Store guidelines ensure a high-quality, reliable, and secure user experience. They are transparent and applied equally to every developer. For the vast majority of apps, developers keep 100% of the money they make. The only apps that are subject to a commission are those where the developer acquires a customer on an Apple device and where the features or services would be experienced and consumed on an Apple device. In the App Store's more than 10-year history, we have never raised the commission or added a single fee. In fact, we've reduced it for subscriptions and exempted additional categories of apps. I'm here today because scrutiny is reasonable and appropriate. We approach this process with respect and humility, but we make no concession on the facts. What began as 500 apps is now more than 1.7 million, only 60 of which are Apple software. If Apple is a gatekeeper, what we've done is open the gate wider 
we want to get every app we can on the store, not keep them off. So there's his pitch. He's trying to get ahead of this, saying that the App Store has allowed more businesses to flourish. Look how many more apps are on it. Look how many people are making money on the App Store. This is basically what what all of them said, what Sundar Pichai of Google and what Mark Zuckerberg said at Facebook, that these companies are expanding growth, allowing businesses to grow, and they have a lot of competition. That's what they're trying to sell Congress is that they have a lot of competition. They really don't need these harsh regulations. So let's jump into the part where they actually receive some real critical questions about their their previous business practices. This first big criticism that was launched at Jeff Bezos was about diapers.com. If you're not aware, we've talked about this on the channel. Diapers.com was a website that sold diapers. Amazon wanted to get into that space because diapers is a huge market in the online space. And they went direct competitive head-to-head battle with each other. Amazon, the way that they dealt with diapers.com is they undercut them with price to the point where they're taking substantial losses for every single diaper being sold. They lost hundreds of millions of dollars in the process of competing with diapers.com. But what that did was show diapers.com that Amazon can lose money for as long as possible. They can lose money longer than diapers.com can survive. And so diapers.com conceded defeat. They sold off to Amazon. Amazon invested some money in them. And eventually diapers.com was just shut down. The project was closed. So this is where Jeff Bezos gets asked about that event happening. Um, so you said that Amazon focuses excessively on customers. So how would customers, especially single moms, new families, how would they benefit when the prices were driven up by the fact that you eliminated your main competitor? Well, I don't agree with great respect. I don't agree with the premise. Uh, at the same time, you should recognize in context Diapers is a very large uh, product category sold in many, many places, not just right, at Amazon. This was the online com. diaper it market. Now, we do have evidence that these predatory This is what happens a lot, is they get interrupted over and over again when they're trying to answer the question they were just asked. This is something that's completely obnoxious with Congress, is they will ask a question, a very loaded question with a loaded premise, The CEOs or whoever's there is starting to answer the question. They don't like the answer because it actually explains the context of it. And so they talk right over them as they're answering it. This drives me nuts, but this is how Congress works. And another thing she says is that Amazon drove up the prices of diapers. She says that without any evidence whatsoever. Amazon can't drive up the prices of diapers. If they charged a lot for diapers, people would go to Costco. Amazon is in direct competition with Costco, and because of Costco's warehouse model, the the bulk sizes they sell everything in, they can sell things for extremely cheap. Diapers is their biggest product sold in Costco. If Amazon tried to gouge people on the prices of diapers, they would make a trip to Costco and buy it for much cheaper. So Amazon has not driven up the prices of diapers. She shows no evidence of that, but that's what she's saying here. It certainly is something that uh, has a really hard impact on families, and uh, and I'm really concerned that uh, pricing might have been driven up here by this tactic, and I yield back. So to clarify, she's really concerned about Amazon driving up the prices of products when Amazon is known to be one of the cheapest places to buy anything. This is the dichotomy here. She has no evidence to say that Amazon has resulted in a net increase in diaper prices. I don't think that that's true at all because, like I said, Costco would bring the price down like crazy or Walmart or the many other competitors. That's what Jeff Bezos tried to bring up, but she'll say she's very concerned about that without any evidence. 
Next, let's move on to Zuckerberg here. This is one of the most baffling exchanges of this entire hearing. Was Mark Zuckerberg being asked by, by one of these congresswomen about their competition with other companies? She acts as though companies can't compete with each other. Otherwise, they're doing some type of wrongdoing. Otherwise, it's some type of malevolent behavior. Look at the malfeasance of Facebook trying to compete in an open, competitive market. Let's go ahead and listen to some of this questioning. It's just incredible how detached these politicians are from how business works. Um, Did you ever use this very similar Facebook camera product to threaten Instagram's founder, Kevin Systrom? Uh, Congresswoman, I'm I'm not sure what you would mean by threaten. I think it was public that we were building a a camera app at at the time. Um, That was a well-documented thing. He says that we're building a camera app. This is something that Facebook was already doing, and she's going to act like he was threatening other companies by explaining to them that they're going to be competing in the same field that these other companies are. So hear her explain this. It's just incredible. Let me tell you that, Mr. In a chat, you told Mr. Seistrom that Facebook was, quote, developing our own photo strategy. So how we engage now will also determine how much we're partners versus competitors down the line. Instagram's founder seemed to think that was a threat. He confided, confided in an investor at the time that he feared you would go, he would, that you would go into, quote, destroy mode if he didn't sell Instagram to you. So let's just recap. Facebook cloned a popular product, approached the company you identified as a competitive threat, and told them that if they didn't let you buy them up, there would be consequences. Yes, Congresswoman, that's exactly what they did. That's how business works. What does she think business is? You build products, you compete with other companies, you tell them you're either going to buy them or you're going to compete with them. What does she think happens in the business world? Mergers and acquisitions is a huge part of business growth. That's how companies get paid as they sell to other bigger companies. A lot of plays of tech companies is to sell to bigger tech companies. That's a lot of business plans of companies. She has no clue how business works. She's acting like Facebook is doing a great evil by building a product and competing with other companies that have similar products. There's nothing malevolent about that. There's no wrongdoing. This is how business works. What does she want Facebook to do? Go, Oh, Instagram, you're building a camera app? Well, I guess we'll just step to the side. We won't enter that field. You already have that covered. Is that how business works? What is she talking about here? Mark Zuckerberg does fantastic here. He's actually really good in front of Congress. For the people that make fun of him that he's a nerdy programmer or whatever, he's actually great in front of Congress. If I was in front of him, I would want to blow up at every question. I'd want to freak out at every single question here because they don't even know what they're talking about. But here he goes and he tries to explain that this isn't really the context and that this is how normal business works. Congresswoman, I want to respectfully disagree with the characterization. I think it was it was clear that this was a space that we were going to uh, compete in one way or another. I don't view those conversations as a threat in any way. I, I, I I just, I, I'm just out. using the documents and the testimony that the committee has collected from others. Now, of course, Zuckerberg tries to explain the context. He tries to say that really isn't how it happened. But as per usual, he's interrupted, talked over by Congress. That's what they do best is they don't want to actually listen to anything these people want to say. They don't want to listen to anybody they're talking to. They just want to hear themselves talk. So she talks right over them. And then this is how she goes on to characterize Facebook. Listen to how she talks about this company. 
Facebook is a case study, in my opinion, in monopoly power because your company harvests and monetizes our data, and then your company uses that data to spy on competitors and to copy, acquire, and kill rivals. They use their advantage to copy, acquire, and kill rivals. Copy, acquire, and kill. Instagram was purchased for a billion dollars. That's killing someone? If that's killing rivals, I want to be killed. Because if they pay me a billion dollars to buy my app and then they grow it into something much bigger and I have the legacy of starting that plus I'm a billionaire, that sounds like a pretty good situation to be in. It's not like Instagram was this little project that Facebook just crushed. They purchased it. They purchased it and then they invested a lot of time and resources in it. They had the the smarts and the people to make it successful. So now Instagram is a hundred times bigger, but they didn't kill Instagram They made it much bigger, and they paid the original founders of it a billion dollars. Now, this theme continues on with Mark Zuckerberg. He gets asked more questions. They're trying to paint Facebook as this big, unstoppable monopoly. So here's their attempt at doing this. Mr. Zuckerberg, in 2004, when you had launched Facebook, uh, it's fair to say, I think you'd agree with me, that you had quite a few competitors. Would you agree with that? Uh, Congressman, yes. MySpace, Friendster, Google's Orkut, Mixi, SciWorld, Yahoo 360, uh, AOL's Bebo, they were all competitors? Uh, Congressman, those were some of the competitors at the time, and it's only gotten a lot more competitive since. Well, let's talk about that, because by 2012, Mr. Zuckerberg, none of those companies that I just identified existed. Boom. He's got you, Zuckerberg. All those companies, when you started Facebook, none of them exist anymore. You destroyed all of them. You're a monopoly. Of course, the congressman fails to mention that TikTok was the second most downloaded app in the U.S. in 2019. It is one of the biggest social media apps now. It's a Chinese firm that came in here with a direct competitor to Facebook, and they're saturating the U.S. market with their app. That is direct competition that's happening right now, today. TikTok is one of the hottest apps. He doesn't mention that, but instead he mentions companies like AOL that are are gone. They're no longer here. And he's trying to say that Facebook is a monopoly because they don't exist anymore. He asked Zuckerberg if he agrees that Facebook is a monopoly. Facebook, in my view, I think was in a monopoly by then. I I wonder whether you would agree with that. I I take it you don't. Congressman, that's correct. I don't. We face a a lot of competitors in um, every part of what we do, uh, from uh, connecting with friends privately to connecting with people in communities to connecting with all your friends at once to connecting with um, all kinds of user-generated content. I mean, I, I would bet that that you or most people here have um, multiple apps for each of those on your phones. Well, uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, let's... Now, here it is again. Zuckerberg gets asked about normal business practices, basically just competing as a business, and it's talked about as if it's evil. Would you agree with me that Facebook, uh, its strategy since that time... Uh, to essentially protect what I describe as a monopoly, but obviously what you would describe as market power, uh, that Facebook has been engaged in purchasing competition, uh, in some cases replicating competition, uh, and in some cases eliminating a competition. Would you agree, Mark Zuckerberg, that you use any of these tactics, that you buy other companies, something called mergers and acquisitions? Would you agree that you compete with other companies by making similar products, that you expand your product line? He's acting like this is somehow bad, that Mark Zuckerberg's making concessions by admitting that as a business leader, he competes with other businesses. I know it's hard for Congress to grasp this because they don't have to compete. They just have money pouring in from taxpayers, so they're not competing with anybody. 
They just get a paycheck regardless of what happens in the world. But other businesses actually do have to compete to survive. If Facebook did not buy Instagram, if Facebook didn't do mergers and acquisitions, if they didn't create new products that were similar to other trends and things that were going on, they would go out of business. But somehow he talks about this like it's somehow bad. Now, this next part's a little bit revealing because he takes what's clearly a joke in an email and tries to insist that Mark Zuckerberg was being serious. Facebook also tried to buy other competitive startups. Uh, in fact, as uh, Chairman Nadler noted, uh, you did tell one of Facebook's senior engineers in 2012 that you can, quote, likely buy, just buy any competitive startup, but it'll be a while before we can buy Google. Do you recall writing that email? Uh, Congressman, I don't specifically, but it, it sounds like a joke. Clearly, this was a joke. In 2012, when Facebook purchased Instagram, Google was about four times the size of Facebook. It was more likely that Google could have purchased Facebook during that time. So obviously, he was just making a tongue-in-cheek joke here. But the congressman insists that this was serious. He says it wasn't a joke. I don't take it as a joke. Uh, you know, as I review the email, it was in regards to having just closed the Instagram sale. And the response from this individual, this engineer, to you was, quote, well played. Your response was, thanks. One reason people underestimate the importance of watching Google is that we can likely always just buy any competitive startups, but it'll be a while before we can buy Google. He insists saying that the Instagram sale is kind of evidence that he's not joking. Instagram was purchased for a billion dollars. At that time, Google was worth about $210 billion. A little bit of difference in size there. Next, they attack Facebook and Google based off the fact that the market changes with news and that there's less uh, local journalism now. Facebook and Google uh, have gravely threatened journalism in the United States. Reporters have been fired, local newspapers have been shut down, and now we hear that Google and Facebook are making money over what news the Amer they let the American people see. It actually seems like he's just upset that Facebook and Google have changed the way people consume media. That people don't read their local newspaper quite as much because they can get a lot of news locally on apps like Facebook and Google. Uh, this is just a general complaint with changes in the market space. Is he also going to complain that the uh, the automobile got rid of the horse and buggy as a mode of transportation, that it's destroying jobs, that the horse and buggy and the people that operate that are gone? Is he going to complain that Tesla, that Elon Musk is getting rid of jobs at Ford and other competitors that haven't moved along to electric vehicles as fast? Look at Ford stock. Tesla is bad for the economy. It's getting rid of jobs in other lagging companies. A lot of this is just accusations and complaints about normal business. Now, this next question was a little bit more controversial. One of the congressmen asked, to all four of them, do they believe that China steals intellectual property from the U.S.? Does a Chinese government steal intellectual property from American firms? Uh, I don't know of specific cases where we uh, have been stolen from uh, by the government. So you don't believe that the Chinese government's stealing technology from U.S. companies? Or are you just saying that not from yours? I'm saying uh, I, I know of no case on ours where it occurred which is I can only speak to first-hand knowledge. Mr. Pichai, do you believe that the Chinese government steals technology from United States companies? Uh, Congressman, uh, uh, I have no first-hand knowledge of uh, any information stolen from Google. Both of them kind of sidestep that question. They, they do a little dodge there. They don't really answer it. They say, we don't know of it happening with our company. That really wasn't the question asked. What they asked was, do you believe that China 
is stealing data from American companies. It's obvious why Tim Cook isn't answering this, because they they do all their manufacturing in China. They have close relationships there. It's a really important market for Apple. So Tim Cook does kind of sidestep the question, and Sundar Pichai does the same thing. But listen to the answer that Mark Zuckerberg gives. Congressman, I think it's well documented that the Chinese government steals technology from American companies. Thank you. Sure they do. It's well documented. And Mark Zuckerberg, he really doesn't have, I think, close ties with China. There's no reason why he has to tiptoe around this question. Facebook is blocked in China. They block pretty much every aspect of their company from even being operational there. So he has no reason to tiptoe around the question. Now, in another question, Jeff Bezos gets asked about counterfeit products on Amazon. This is a huge problem that Amazon faces. They try to make it out like Jeff Bezos likes counterfeits because he profits off of it. So uh, here's this dialogue between the two of them. What I can tell you is that the we have a counterfeit crimes unit. We uh, attempt to prosecute counterfeiters. I would uh, encourage this body to uh, pass stricter penalties for counterfeiters and to increase law enforcement resources to go after counterfeiters. But your company does make money off of counterfeit goods being sold on your platform. Isn't that correct? If it does, in my view, sir, it would only be in the short term. We we don't make, I, I would much rather lose a sale than lose a customer. Counterfeiters do not help Amazon, not in their long-term growth. And this is a problem that Amazon is having to deal with themselves because of the lack of support the government is giving. So Congress saying you're benefiting from counterfeiters is not correct. And when Jeff Bezos brings up, hey, we need some help with this. Could you actually give us more resources to deal with the problems of these crimes, these counterfeits? Uh, They just gloss right over that. They don't want to have to do anything on their end, actually passing legislation that would help uh, protect against counterfeiters, but they're fine blaming Jeff Bezos for profiting off of these counterfeit sales. As this hearing went on, the lines of questioning just got worse and lazier. Here's the last one that I'll share. I think it summarizes the, the quality of the questions. Mr. Bezos, are, are stolen goods sold on Amazon? Uh, Congresswoman, not to my knowledge, although, I, you know, this, we're more, they're more than a million sellers, and so I'm sure that there have been stolen goods really, sold Mr. Bezos? on Amazon. Really, Mr. Bezos? I'm sorry? There's not? I'm, you don't believe that there is? I that said, surprises me. No, I just said I'm, with over a million sellers, I'm sure that it has happened. Um, but certainly, I don't think it's a large part of what we're selling. Okay, so Mr. Bezos, basically, then you're saying yes. I guess so. Okay, Congresswoman, you got me. Good question. I I concede that maybe out of the million sellers on our platform, some of them might have sold stolen goods. Like that's some big gotcha answer. What kind of questions are these? You have the four biggest business leaders in the world sitting in front of you. Tim Cook, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Sundar Pichai. You can ask them anything and this is your line of questioning. Cheap gotcha questions that don't reveal anything insightful. Unfortunately, that's what most of this hearing was were questions like this, just gotcha moments, trying to get their their uh, attacks out on these big companies. All of it has to do with politics, going against these big dominating companies so that they can say to their constituents that they stood up to Jeff Bezos. But I think it's sad to waste opportunities like this. To wrap this up, of course, the chairman gives his concluding remarks that this hearing made it all clear that these four companies are monopolies. This hearing has made one fact clear to me. These companies as exist today have monopoly power. He says this meeting that they're at made clear to him that these companies are monopolies. 
but he's reading this closing statement from a stack of papers. Did he actually prepare that during the meeting? Did he go and type that out during this meeting? I think he probably typed this concluding remark out last night. He probably did it before the meeting even started. But here he is reading from a stack of papers saying that this this meeting makes clear to him that these companies are monopolies. So there you have it from the very open-minded Congress. Now, the big question from all of this is, is Congress really going to come forward with some huge antitrust action and do something like break up Instagram and Facebook or put in really punitive measures against these companies? I don't believe so. And I don't think it's because these companies are lobbying and paying off the politicians. I think it's because Congress really doesn't understand what they're dealing with. And they know that if they screw anything up, they could cause a tremendous amount of damage to the U.S. These are four of the biggest companies in the U.S. competing with the rest of the world. And if they they mess with them too much, they mess with their business models, they might inhibit their ability to compete and also destroy a lot of jobs in the U.S. and not really help competition that much as well. So basically, they're messing with something that they don't fully understand that if they get it wrong could have extremely adverse consequences. So I think that they will tread very lightly with antitrust measures. Okay, now moving on from that, let's get to the big news. Apple stock heads for all-time highs after crushing Wall Street's expectations. This was a really big beat. If we look at the numbers on revenue they beat, on earnings per share, on iPhone revenue, service revenue, and accessories. I think out of all of these, the service revenue is the most important. The fact that they're on track with service revenue, I think, is really important. But let's go through the numbers real quick. Apple said that they earned $59.7 billion versus $52.3 billion. That is their overall revenue. Earnings per share, 2.58 versus 2.07. iPhone revenue was $26.42 billion. Service revenue, $13.2 billion versus $13.1 billion. And accessories, $6.5 billion versus $6.1. They crushed it in every single category. I was excited about this for a couple different reasons. One of them was that I recently purchased about 50 shares of Apple. So I made significant purchases in this company. Many people criticize me for these purchases for a variety of different reasons, basically saying that I'm buying the company at all-time highs, that it's FOMO, all these different things. But uh, I looked at the company. I compared it to other companies. For instance, Apple has about a 30 PE ratio right now. It's trading at a 30 times multiple. It might be a little bit higher right now. But at the time that I purchased it, it was trading at around a 27 multiple. Costco, for instance, has above 30 multiple. Nike has above 30 multiple. Facebook and Microsoft and all these companies have a higher multiple than Apple. And I don't think that that's really justified. I think Apple is growing really steadily as a business and has a very significant moat. So that's part of the reason that I purchased it is I think in general terms, the company's undervalued. And I think that it has really high quality products that brings a lot of brand loyalty. So I was excited that they had a strong earnings report. I can't control what direction the market goes. But the market has gone crazy with this stock. It's up 8.3% in one day. If I go to my holding of Apple, the market is generally down right now. In fact, if I go to the one day view here, you can see my portfolio. Every single sector is in the red, except for tech. And that is mostly because of one company, Apple. I'm up $1,500 just today on this holding, 8.23% as it stands right now. So this has been a, a, a pretty good company to hold. They do pay a dividend. They grow it over time. Uh, They do share buybacks. They do everything. Apple is a growth company. It's a value company. It it fits into a lot of different categories. But I don't think Apple is a company you should be excluding from your portfolio, along with other good companies, MasterCard, Microsoft, and Visa. Overall, my portfolio has a significantly higher yield than the market. 
overall, I continue to grow a stream of cash flow. So I'm focusing on those companies. But if there's really good growth potential in other companies like Apple, I still think that it's worth purchasing. Now, there's other news as well. Apple is announcing a four to one stock split. This is something that they've done frequently over time. And I think that this is for a good reason. If we look at Apple's share price, it is $417 a share. It continues to go up every hour, it seems like. But it's $417 a share right now. When they do a four to one stock split, that means that every share based on today's price would be around you know, a little over $100, like $104. So if we look at share splits, a lot of people are confused of what this means. Does this mean you get four times the dividends? No, the dividend stays the same. The dividend will be split just like the share. So instead of a share paying X amount, it'll be X amount divided by four. In the end, the company will have the exact same yield. So share splits is mostly a cosmetic thing. The biggest functional difference is the ability for people to purchase small amount of quantities of Apple if they don't have fractional shares. On M1 and many other brokers, we are benefiting from having fractional shares. I put in the dollar amount I want to buy of Apple and M1 just buys that amount. So I don't have an exact share count. My share count's like 49 and a half or something like that. So I can buy fractional shares, but some people are limited to buying the whole share. And I think that that's what they're trying to address here. They're making it more available for retail investors, small-time investors that don't have fractional shares to pick up a little bit of Apple. If they want to buy two shares, they can buy it. I also think there's another pretty big benefit to stock splits, and that is that it makes it a little bit psychologically easier to purchase shares in these companies. If you look at this and you're just a a retail investor and you're looking at Apple and you see the price is $419 now for one share, you think that's a lot of money. Then you look at Amazon and a share of Amazon is $3,170 for one share. So as a retail investor, you think, is it really worth buying Amazon? one share of it for over three grand. Is that really worth it? It's really a tough pill to swallow for investors. So I think it makes it a little bit easier for investors to purchase the shares when they're at smaller prices, even though right now, Apple is a bigger company than Amazon. It's a more expensive company to buy than Amazon. But the share price being smaller has a psychological effect of making it easier to dollar cost average into this company. I think that's part of the reason why investors do well in ETFs is because it's a level of obfuscation. You buy the ETF like the S&P 500 for 200 bucks, and really what it's doing is buying shares of Amazon for $3,000. But you don't have to see your money being used directly that way. So when I look at this, I think the stock split will also help investors, retail investors, pick up a few shares of Apple when they might have otherwise not. Now I know another question I'm going to get asked is, Joseph, should I buy Apple now? Should I buy it now after this recent spike? Or did I miss the window of opportunity? I didn't buy it a month ago. I didn't buy it two months ago. And now it spiked up like crazy. It's up almost 10% just today. Should I buy into this company? This is a tough question, but I think it's actually pretty simple. Apple's trading at a 33 PE ratio. It has a market cap of over $1.8 trillion currently. I have said repeatedly that I think Apple will easily surpass a $2 trillion market cap. I just think it will get there eventually. It's just a matter of time. So I think that you still can buy it right now. It's historically more expensive than it's ever been, but this is a company that continues to grow and innovate and make really good products, and they're expanding into different services. So I think they have a lot of growth potential ahead of them. But the bigger point is, the reason that I originally purchased this company was the PE ratio was about 27, and basically every other company around Apple had a much higher PE ratio. And I thought, why does this company have such a low P.E. ratio compared to the rest of them? 
And the reason why that I looked up was that people said, well, Apple's a hardware company. They're just one bad phone away from having some huge dip. And I didn't really agree with that. I thought that Apple is, is a whole ecosystem of products. It has incredible brand loyalty. I think that the people that are, are fans of Apple, they're going to buy their products. They're going to expect them to be good, but they're going to buy their products every time they come out. So I think that Apple is being treated like some uh, clunky hardware company, when in reality, they are a very polished ecosystem of products that iterate through improvements over time. The iPhone really doesn't have to change that much. It just gets better and better every single version with small improvements. And that's enough to keep people buying that product over and over again. So I think that they have an extremely loyal customer base. As long as Apple makes good products, that loyal customer base will buy those products. I'm one of them. I'm going to continue buying Apple products until I don't like them anymore. And as soon as I don't like the product, I'm going to sell the company. So that's where my conviction with this company comes in. It's partly because I really just like the products that they make. If that changes, I'm going to be selling out of the stock. Because if I don't like the products that they're making, I'm assuming other people like me aren't going to like them as well. So that's part of the reason that I purchased it. If you don't have that level of conviction with the company, I don't think you should buy it at this price. Because if it does have some 10 or 20% dip, you might end up selling out instead of buying more of it. If this would have went the other direction and Apple would have had some poor earnings report, they missed a couple metrics and all the analysts had really bearish views on them all of a sudden, I wouldn't have been concerned. I would not be concerned about this company until I don't like their products. That's how I'm treating most of this investment. So if you're considering making Apple a big part of your portfolio, you should look at whether or not you think that they're going to continue to make market-leading devices? What are the best devices with the best software? If you think the company can continue doing that into the future, I think the answer is yes. You should make this part of your portfolio. Just realize that there's going to be dips in between. If you're going to sell out when the stock comes down 10 or 20%, then don't buy it today because there's going to be times when big hedge funds shift things around or they take profits or do whatever, and Apple will come back down for a while. But as far as I'm concerned, if they keep making and improving their products like they have been, I'm really not concerned about this company. This is one of the least stressful companies in my portfolio. I have next to no stress buying Apple. It's just, I, I buy it. I don't worry about it. Uh, their earnings report's great. It's, it's good news, but I wouldn't have sold this company if they had a bad earnings. Now, as far as a general portfolio update, we've almost reached $4,000 in earned dividends. That's a good amount of earned dividends. The market gains are at $2,000 now. Finally, we're getting both sides of it. We're having market gains and we're having dividends. We're enjoying uh, valuations going up and we're enjoying a constant stream of income. This has been an evolving process. Coronavirus has highlighted that some companies are more susceptible to this type of event than others. The cloud companies and tech companies have not been affected as much by the coronavirus. So you can see this illustrated throughout my profile. In fact, if I go to the one day view here, you see it illustrated right here. Tech is in the green by quite a bit. Every single other sector real estate, consumer, healthcare, finance, utilities, all of them are in the red. And this is what most of this year has been. Value companies have been getting crushed. Tech companies have been doing well. Now, I don't think this is going to be the case forever. I think that real estate will recover. I think these consumer companies will do well. Healthcare is obviously a growing industry, finances as well. So I think there's going to be eventual growth with these other sectors. But right now, I would be careful how much money you put into real estate and how much money you put into industrials. These sectors are being damaged pretty heavily. The sectors that I've tried to focus on is growing tech, growing consumer, healthcare, and finance. These are the ones that I've been focusing on the most. 
I've been growing finance because I think there's going to be a lot of innovation there in the fintech space. I've been buying MasterCard and Visa, as well as a lot of JP Morgan. I've been buying different healthcare companies, and there's some consumer companies that I've been buying. So that's most of the purchases I've been doing. I'm going to continue to make purchases of Bank of America, of JP Morgan, of Visa and MasterCard, because I think that those companies are going to do really well over the next year. Now, if I go and I filter by the one month view here, I've earned $300 in dividends and $3,500 in market gains. It's about $3,800 in the past 30 days. It's been a good month. That has been a really good month. So this shows you how quickly things can change. Just a short time ago, this portfolio was in the red by quite a bit, but repositioning it and, and moving into some companies, moving out of some companies and continuing with the strategy, I think has put this in a good position for the future. So uh, I have an updated link of this portfolio in the description. If you want to look at all the holdings I have, what companies I've dropped and which ones I've added new, they're all in the description in that link that says my main portfolio. Okay, let's move on to some emails. Joseph at josephcarlsonshow.com is the email address. You can write in any of your questions, criticisms, anything you want to talk about, and we'll discuss it here on the show. The first one's from Jason. He says, Joseph, I've seen all of your videos and think you're doing a great job. Following your information, I have a sizable investment in various individual dividend growth stocks. In one of your newest videos, you decided to move towards your growth stocks, such as Apple, Microsoft, and less towards other sectors. I know you have a few Vanguard ETFs in your Roth IRA. What do you think of the Vanguard ETFs, VUG, and VGT to capture the Apples, Microsofts, etc.? Yeah, that's a good question, Jason. If you look at the bottom of my portfolio, if you look at the link in the bottom, it said one line that I've had there since day one of creating my portfolio, that it's a defensive portfolio focused around creating a stream of passive income. It's defensive. That's something that I've been trying to focus on. What I found is that coronavirus highlighted the Achilles heel to this type of strategy. The the type of companies that have been uh, really punished during this specific environment have not been the high-flying tech stocks. They haven't been punished. The companies that have been punished have been the more conservative value stocks, like the ones that most dividend growth investors invest in. So with the goal of making my portfolio defensive, I don't want to have an Achilles heel. I don't want to have anything that can do substantial damage to my portfolio. And so all I'm trying to do is make it a more well-rounded, more defensive portfolio. So that has been the main goal in this transition is to try to balance the, the different type of value stocks, as well as having stocks that are more growth oriented, but more importantly, they're stocks that are less affected by the coronavirus. They're less affected by this, ter- this type of environment that happens to be tech stocks. And the reason that tech stocks are less affected is because they don't have a lot of capital expenditures. They don't have to have millions of employees and lots of retail locations. They're in the cloud. And so they continue to operate even if things are closed down, the government closed down states, all the tech stocks continue to do well. In fact, more of the focus moves towards them the longer things are closed down. And I'm going to continue doing episodes. One of them I have planned is basically to show that I think that things are going to stay shut down for a little bit longer than I originally anticipated. So... When I'm looking at the current environment right now, I'm seeing the coronavirus not really seem like it's going anywhere too fast. It continues to go up in the U.S. Everybody seems to be wearing masks right now, and it's still around. So this has been a bit of a dynamic shift that viewing this historically, the growth stocks seem like the more risky stocks. That's what growth stocks are. They're more risky. They're more volatile. uh, they're, They're riskier holdings. But coronavirus has kind of swapped things to now value stocks seem more risky. Buying in companies like Delta Airlines is the risky bet. 
buying in AMC theaters, that's a risky bet. Buying in real estate right now, that's a risk right there. Buying growth stocks like Apple and Amazon, that's kind of the safe bet right now. So I don't feel like I'm increasing risk in my portfolio. What I think I'm doing is actually decreasing risk. I think I'm trying to balance the portfolio out. I think it will actually reduce risk in the portfolio. So that's the primary goal behind it. Now, you bring up these Vanguard ETFs. I think VUG is really good. So I like that ETF a lot. If you look through the holdings of it, it has really solid holdings. I don't know VGT as well, but I do like VUG a lot. I also like, just as a general growth ETF, one that's mentioned a lot on our Discord is SPYG. That's SPYG. You can check out that ETF as well if you're looking at extremely high quality growth companies. So I would check that one out as well. Emil says, my name is Emil. I'm coming all the way from Belgium with a question. I'm a second year bachelor student in business engineering economics at the University of Ghent. Uh, what books did you read on finance and investing? What are your sources to get new interesting titles? There's a lot of good books on investing. I think the best one is from Peter Lynch. I've read The Intelligent Investor. I've read books from Warren Buffett. I've read books from Howard Marks. I think the best book on investing is from Peter Lynch. Beating the Street is a fantastic book. His advice, I think, is second to none. He has such good advice for everyday investors. He basically says to invest in things that you know and understand. Don't invest in companies that you don't know how they're making money and you really don't understand them. Don't put your money with them. Put your money in companies that you really understand, you really like how they make money, the products that they sell, and they have a really good story. He's all about story of the investment. If the company has a great story, if it's growing and expanding, if it's going to be a lot bigger in five years than it is today, that's probably a good investment. So that's been his primary advice, and that's really how he ran uh, his fund. The Magellan Fund did really well. He was one of the all-stars of Fidelity. He's the one that made Fidelity what it is today. So Peter Lynch was this rock star investor. He was one of the best investors of history, and his strategy was basically to look for companies that have a great story that he really likes the products they sell. One of his best investments was Dunkin' Donuts. He went to a Dunkin' Donut. He thought, this is a long line for a donut place. What type of donuts are these? And he got one and he thought, this is a great donut. And it came off an assembly line. Dunkin' Donuts, how many of these locations are there? So he started to do research. He saw that they were expanding rapidly. And then he went to new locations and saw that the new locations were packed. And after that, he decided, I love the donuts. Everybody loves these things. They're expanding like crazy. I need to buy this company. So he bought that company and had a 10 times return on it. He made 10 times his original investment on it with Dunkin' Donuts. That's why he believes in buying what you know, what you think has a good story. So I think that that's really good advice. Of course, there's other good books on investing from Warren Buffett. The Intelligent Investor, I think, is good. It's a little bit more of a dry read. Um... And then I think on the subject of investing, there's lots of good books. You can read about The Ride of a Lifetime if you want to read about Bob Iger. Lots of books that I read outside of investing specifically, but just in general business, like Bad Blood from John Carreyu. It's about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos and the big scam that happened with that. So I like reading about all this stuff, but I think Peter Lynch really has the most applicable and easy to implement advice for retail investors. And then the question, what are your sources to get new interesting titles? I think of the titles myself, so I don't have any sources to get the titles for videos, if that's what you're talking about. Most of what I talk about is just whatever's going on, whatever's on my mind. So that will continue to be the episodes are basically what my thoughts are on current events and 
what I'm doing with my investments and all of that. Okay, well, I think I covered some of the news. There's a lot more to go over. I have an episode plan where I'm going to give a little bit of an economic update now that we have some economic news. So not as uplifting of an episode, but we need to talk about the economy. So I'm going to be doing that in the next episode. So uh, I appreciate everybody for listening. Thank you for all the support. If you haven't, like half of you listening are not subscribed. So it does help me out when you hit the subscribe button. It's free to do. I appreciate everybody that does that and shares the channel. And I'll talk to you guys next time.